Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. During the Jim Crow era, many public places were segregated, including some national and state parks. We'll hear about one green space in Virginia that was an important gathering spot for black families throughout central Appalachia. I learned how to swim down here. Because black kids didn't know how to swim. This was our swimming place. For a lot of writers and publishers, Appalachia means stories about the rural experience, like coal mining or farming. But that's not the West Virginia I grew up in, and it's not the one I could authentically write about. We'll hear why Marie Manila calls herself an urban Appalachia writer. And we'll meet a family with roots in Mexico and in Appalachia. The styles of music are so different. The um, culture around it is very similar. It involves food, people dancing together, people singing and improvising and playing in nature. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. Today, we're listening back to some stories we originally aired last fall. But first, we wanted to bring you a conversation we recorded this week. The Russian invasion in Ukraine is sending shockwaves throughout the world. But did you know that the geography and culture of the people who live in the mountains of southwest Ukraine have a lot in common with Appalachia? If you Google image the Carpathian Mountains, you'll see stunning images that look very similar to views in our own backyard. A group of scholars in Appalachia and in Ukraine noticed these connections, too. So they've been collaborating for years. Our producer, Roxy Todd, spoke with Christopher Miller, a scholar at Berea College in Kentucky. He talked about the intercultural connections between the two regions and what the recent invasion means for his colleagues there. So, Christopher, you've spent some time studying in Ukraine and know colleagues there and have been involved in this cross-cultural collaboration for a number of years. Can you talk a little bit about the connections that you see in this mountain range, the Carpathian Mountains and in Appalachia? It starts out with the mountains look really similar. If you look at a picture, Google Carpathian Mountains, you'll see mountains that look kind of similar in that they're uh, they're rounded, they're green, they don't look much like the Rocky Mountains or other areas. They look more like Appalachia than anything else. But what's really interesting, I think, is that there are a lot of parallels in how life has worked in those regions. You know, it's kind of been a marginalized area relative to the rest of Ukraine, for example. There are stereotypes about those mountain people in the Carpathians that go on in Ukraine and uh, that are very similar in how it can work out uh, between, you know, the pe- way people stereotype Appalachian people. The Some of the economies is very similar. People tend to do crafts and patch together income, doing a variety of things as both an expression of heritage and culture and closeness to the land, as well as a way to bring in a little money because it's sometimes you have to patch together income in a variety of ways. And that works both the same in both places. There's this one ethnic group called Hutsul, H-U-T-S-U-L. But sometimes that word is actually used, like we use the word hillbilly, to just describe mountain people generally. So within the region, it's used to describe a specific ethnic group. And there's in Western Ukraine, there's three major ones, Hutsul, Boyko, and Lemko, uh, that people trace their heritage to. They might see that word within the region 
one way, but people sort of on the outskirts will just call everybody Hutzels. Oh, stupid Hutzels, you know, they're backwards, they're whatever. So you get a kind of a parallel construction there. And also you get people proudly bearing that label, just like some people proudly call themselves hillbillies and see something, you know, their heritage and their identity in that, that they're proud of. That word functions the same way uh, in that region too. And obviously the news coming out of Ukraine is it's really heartbreaking. What are you hearing from your counterparts in Ukraine? Is that part of the country in any way buffered right now? Are they, you know, in the midst of fighting? Well, if, if you pull up a map of Ukraine, somebody might do that. And uh, there's this kind of lobe on the western side. It'd be on the left if you're looking at the map. And you'll notice that it's kind of wrapped, tucks in around Poland, Slovakia, Romania, Hungary, Moldova. And that part is kind of isolated or off to the side from the heart of Ukraine. Some of my friends live near the airport in a city called Ivano-Frankivsk, and there were strikes at the airport there and a few other military targets. But they're not on the mainstream. I mean, kind of like how Appalachia sometimes is characterized as not on the mainstream, right? So they're not as threatened by troops marching in and things like that. However, they are definitely affected by people trying to escape areas of direct conflict and ground fighting coming into Western Ukraine. And then it's also the path to the rest of Europe, so into Poland into Romania, into Slovakia, into Hungary, people in some of those places are welcoming families coming across the border, trying to provide shelter for them, all of that. There is a kind of a unity in those mountain areas. The Carpathian Mountains wrap uh, in a kind of a curl from in Romania, Ukraine, Slovakia, southern Poland, a little bit in the Czech Republic, they make this curve. The people often in those countries historically have felt a lot more affinity to the mountains and their identity as shared among as mountain people more so than the individual countries that they live in sometimes, especially the ones that have been there for many generations. Those people in Western Ukraine and especially in the mountains in all of those areas have a very specific relationship with Russia and the Soviet Union that may be hard for us to understand in some ways, but it might be easier as people in the Appalachian region who may feel a little more identity and somewhat of an oppression, both culturally, socially, politically, from the dominant cultures around Appalachia. And that's been going on for generations there. So, you know, there was times in the past, not the very distant past even, where it was against the law in Western Ukraine to sing Ukrainian Christmas carols because Russia controlled the area or the Soviet Union did. Uh, and was pursuing a policy of what they called Russification, which was, you need to adapt to our culture. And I think Appalachian people can really relate to this, being told, you need to adapt to our culture. You need to give up your accent. You need to give up your music. You need to give up your ways of patching together income and get get a straight up job like everybody else or whatever, you know, even though that may not fit the circumstances where you live. And That is one thing that really we've learned ties these two regions together is you get a sort of a dominant society around trying to tell people how to live and suppressing their culture. Historically, Russia has been a big part of that, whether through the Soviet Union and even before that in the Russian Empire. In Western Ukraine, there was also the Austro-Hungarian Empire that did a similar thing and tried to sort of suppress. And these people have been fighting for their culture to be on par with everybody else for generations. And there are a lot of people in Russia who've grown up believing that people who speak Ukrainian speak a degraded version of Russian, you know, even though 
historically, both languages descend from a Proto-Slavic type thing. One is not a degraded version of the other. And yet these people have heard this all their lives, so they believe it, you know. And so there's all kinds of cultural suppression and cultural conflict issues at the root of this and that come down to language and appearance and lifestyle that I think a lot of Appalachian people could really relate to. And especially people from West Virginia, I think, you know, who've been told a lot of things about who they should be or who they shouldn't be. And uh, I think you can go to that in some ways to try to understand what's going on. That was Christopher Miller, Associate Director of Appalachian Studies at Berea College, speaking with Roxy Todd. On our website, you can find photos of the Carpathian Mountains and a link where you can learn more about how Western Ukraine compares with Appalachia. It's part of an ongoing project called Kindred Lands. In the 1930s, the Civilian Conservation Corps and other New Deal programs created parks across America. But many of these places were closed off to Black people, especially in the Jim Crow South. In Clifton Forge, Virginia, the local branch of the NAACP pushed for the creation of a recreation area for African Americans. So the state of Virginia partnered with the U.S. Forest Service, and in 1937, they opened Green Pastures. It became a destination for generations of Black people across central Appalachia. Now, Green Pastures is seeing new life. Inside Appalachia, co-host Mason Adams has more. Green Pastures was officially integrated in 1950, but it continued to be a gathering spot for Black families from southwestern Virginia. When I visit the park in late September, one of the first people I see is Curtis Beverly, who lives in nearby Iron Gate and grew up coming here. He's with his wife, Virginia Spinner Beverly. What was your first memories of this park? I was knee-high to a grasshopper then. We used to have our church outings down here. We're looking out at a bright green field ringed with old pines and hardwoods. When Curtis was a kid, this was a big ball field. Atula Clark Moore remembers the games there. When you come through the entrance and up the road and you look to the right to this field, it would be people playing baseball and all kinds of games. A lot of folks remember what Green Pastures was like in its heyday in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. As soon as we turned off that road, We were assaulted by the sound of children. Children were everywhere. It looked like ants. And their laughter was was standing up in the car, you know, aching to get out, aching to get out. And we would park in the parking lot, and there was a footbridge, and we'd follow a path up to another open area, and that was the beach area. And that's where the lake was. Yeah, we just had picnics and cookouts and swimming. A lot of them swam. I didn't, but a lot of them swam. I learned how to swim down here. Because black kids didn't know how to swim. This was our swimming place. And that area would be full of people picnicking. The picnic tables, people cooking out, um, people playing games, horseshoes. And my grandmother used to come here every Sunday and set up, and everybody would want to be around her because she was a good cook and she fed everybody. Our mothers, everybody's mother, 
would put the food in that pavilion. The kids would head off to the beach. The dads would be on the dam, jumping into the deep end of the water. So it was just a full day of fun, food, friends, beautiful time. That was Clifton Forge Mayor Pamela Marshall, Gregory Key, Trula Clark Moore, Ethel Thompson, and Virginia Spinner Beverly. And one thing that's important not to lose sight of is that because Green Pastures fulfilled the role it did as a recreation site specifically dedicated to black people during the final decades of Jim Crow, it wasn't just a place for people from Clifton Forge, but from the broader region, even into West Virginia. Here's historian Josh Howard, who grew up in Clifton Forge and worked on the campaign to restore green pastures. The Forest Service was really planning on anybody from within roughly a 200 to 250 mile radius using green pastures, right? So this was a park that was built not just for Clifton Forge and Covington, but also for Charlottesville and for Roanoke, and even for like the southern West Virginia coal fields, which at the time were roughly like 30 or 40 percent African-American. So let's say you came to Green Pastures on a random weekend in 19, you know, 1946, you were going to encounter families from all throughout the entire, really, Appalachian and Western Virginia region. That's part of what Ethel Thompson remembers. I mean, we can look up and see people from all over the country come just stopping down at this park. By the 80s, Green Pastures, now called Longdale Recreation Area, was starting to fade. By the 2000s, the Forest Service stopped maintaining the park. That's where the park was when a local history group called What's Your Story got involved. People from all walks of life shared their memories of green pastures. 21 of them were collected in a published book. The project's director is Joan Vannerstahl. The What's Your Story project is what unified us all and what literally, physically brought us all together to witness what happened here and what it meant to people's lives here. And that's, that was the stimulus. The people around the What's Your Story project began working together to restore green pastures. The effort included everyone from the family that lived next to the park and had been keeping it up for years, to the mayor of Clifton Forge. The door opened when we said, tell us your story. And the story was heard by the state at the right time. We were told, actually, um, by the regional director of the state parks that it was the history of this place and their awareness of it that saved it. And that led to this day in September, when Virginia Governor Ralph Northam showed up to announce the state would lease green pastures from the Forest Service, clean it up, and operate it as a seasonal state park unit. It's also worth remembering Northam got hit with the blackface scandal in 2019, the second year of a single term as governor. He's since presided over a racial reckoning in Virginia. That's included not just the Black Lives Matter rallies of 2020, but the removal of many Confederate statues and monuments across the state, including the statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond, just days before he made this speech at the Green Pastures ribbon cutting. We are telling a story based on facts, not myths. It's important to acknowledge past wrongs and the harm done Clifton Forge Mayor Pamela Marshall announced that Green Pastures is open once again. Come back to Green Pastures. Utilize these resources. Enjoy once again this piece of history and, and witness this miracle in the mountains for many years to come. Clifton Forge resident Gregory Key, who worked on the Oral History Project, said the ribbon cutting marked a milestone. 
you know, because it's been a long time coming, and this place has been missed. Green Pastures is open again. The field, the lake, the trails, they're all ready for new memories to be made. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams in Longdale Furnace. Up next, we'll learn about a band that describes their music as Mexalachian. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. This is the Lua Project. They call their music Mexalachian, a blend of Appalachian old time and Mexican folk songs. But members of the band say their music also draws on Jewish and Eastern European traditions. Their sound is a musical manifestation of what it means to connect with a mixed cultural identity, a journey which isn't always easy. Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett caught up with a couple members of the band at their home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Oh, there's, um, um, <laughs> <laughs> Estella Diaz-Noth and her husband, Dave Brzezanski, play music professionally with their band, The Lua Project. But today, they're playing as a family. Their daughters have recently started learning the Mexalachian songs. They're 13 and 11. Try it. Mommy will be holding, Mama will be holding the, uh, the regular part. That's fine. Mexalachian music is especially personal to Estella, who grew up in Luray, Virginia, to a Mexican mother and a Scots-Irish father. Dave has Jewish, Slavic, and Appalachian roots, and together they've made it their mission to merge their various identities into music. I wanted to give my girls the, the world. I want them to know where they come from. That's the whole purpose of this, is we're writing music that before we pass on, we want it to be ingrained in them so that they can pass it down to their children. Their sound reflects their mixed cultural backgrounds, a fusion that Dave parallels to food. You start to say like, okay, well, food-wise, what's mexilation? Well, you know, well, it's beans, pork, and corn, right? And so then you say, okay, well, those are like really central to both of those cuisines. And you start to see that like they can filter together and interweave themselves in various ways that are totally organic and totally legit. He says it's similar with music. The, the essential rhythm that drives much of Appalachian and country music, it's boom, chicka, 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 boom, boom, boom. That's the same rhythm that's found in musical styles in Latin America, Dave says. And since they're made of the same elements, there's lots of room for creativity. Are we going to have banjo on this track or are we going to have accordion on this track? Or let's be honest, we're just going to have both, right? And that's going to work. Estela's father is from Virginia. Her mother's from Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. After they married, they settled in her father's hometown in the Shenandoah Valley. My mom was actually the first 
Mexican woman in Luray, Virginia. This was in 1967, and interracial marriage had only recently been legalized in Virginia. So it was really challenging for my parents, um, and not, not just in a white community, but also the Latino community. Two thousand miles away from home She never felt so all alone A city girl from a desert land This wasn't quite what she planned In the first couple years, it was so hard on her mother that they moved back to El Paso, Texas, across the border from her hometown. And that didn't turn out so well either because, um, you know, the people in her community were not accepting of the fact that she had married outside of her race. When they came back to Luray, Estella's mom decided if people weren't going to reach out to her, she'd reach out to them. She started to have, like, fiestas in the community and taught like our church um, kids how to dance, you know, Mexican dances and Mexican food and um, just created a, a really beautiful vibe. And eventually it's sort of like more people started to come. As an adult, Estella has followed in her mother's footsteps. My passion is very much um, in cultural organizing. And then through that cultural organizing, I, I get inspired and I write music from it. But she says she hasn't always felt grounded in her Mexilatin identity. Growing up in um, any sort of dominant culture, you just want to blend in. Estella wrote this song called Mexilatin Breakfast as a tribute to her childhood. Just my Mexilatin breakfast. We would have like sausage and gravies and oh, there were the, the tamales that we made, you know, for for the holidays, so we just heat those up too and you throw that on the plate too. These kinds of things always happened, you know. She says she assimilated at a young age, but when she went off to college to study social work, I was like, oh my gosh, there's this piece of me that I feel is missing. That's when she found spirituality. That's sort of like doing sweat lodges and going up on the mountain for fasts sort of brought me to a space one time during a fast of dreaming about the native women of Mexico, I had these visions of these women that I needed, I felt like I really needed to connect to, um, that were my, <laughs> excuse me, they were women that I didn't get to meet. My mother's mother, I would see once a year. There's so many questions I would ask her now. <laughs> Estella had visited the border town where her mother is from many times, but suddenly she wanted to spend time deeper in the country. So in her mid-twenties, she went with her family to Puebla in south-central Mexico. And I just couldn't hold myself together. <laughs> like, um, I get emotional just going back there. Like, the, the smells, just the, the, um, the sound of the streetcars. The, the food in the streets, um, the markets with the fruit rotting, the, you know, just everything was just like hitting me like a genetic memory or something. I don't know. After spending a couple of weeks in Puebla, she reluctantly came back to the U.S. Everything in me was saying I needed to spend more time there. This was in 2000. She and Dave had recently started dating, and together, they hatched a plan to spend a year traveling through Latin America together. They started in Mexico, where they were introduced to San Jarocho. The music from Veracruz, Mexico, that 
inspired all of this Mexilatin music. And they discovered the Fandango. It's a, a community celebration where all the Sonjarucho musicians get together in the Puebla and they gather around a tarima, that platform over there, a wooden platform, bigger, of course, and um, they play Sonjarucho music. She says they would often play music outdoors, in fields or in the woods, and camp out, similar to an old-time festival in the Appalachians. Even though this, the, the, the styles of music are so different, the um, culture around it is very similar. It involves food, people dancing together, people singing and improvising and playing in nature. Estella and Dave came back to the U.S., where they began experimenting with the fusion of Mexican folk music and Appalachian old time. Eventually, they settled in Charlottesville, where they had their two girls, Luna and Mariana. Having kids would change their music and Dave's relationship with his cultural identity. Dave grew up in northern Virginia, feeling largely removed from his Jewish, Slavic, and Appalachian heritage. So at a certain point, you know, you become assimilated into this sort of amorphous, secular, white, dominant identity. But when they had children, Dave felt called to address the different threads of his ancestry. I felt that if I'm going to have children and raise them to be adults, they should be grounded to some extent in their actual cultural origins. He started getting involved with the local Jewish community. When I started hearing the, the traditional melodies from the prayers, I was like, this is the music that has been inside me all this time. He's even been able to find Jewish and Middle Eastern melodies within music from Latin America. As parents, Estella and Dave began to finally feel rooted in their cultural identities. So all of a sudden, I felt like our musical purpose um, was clearer. Dave says he hopes their music encourages people to dive deeper into their own threads of cultural identity. I think... There are a lot of people who are profoundly lonely and profoundly culturally lost. Estella and Dave say they've both been there, and it was hard work to reconnect. You have to do the work. You have to go back and you know, look at old photographs, like talk to your grandparents or whatever. Maybe go to the community in which you're from. Estella says she wants to leave this music behind for her girls and her Mexilachian community to inspire a sense of belonging she didn't have growing up. I always felt like I, had, I was on this line, just walking this line, that I didn't belong here in the Mexican community. I didn't belong in the, you know, white community that I, that I grew up in. Um, I just didn't fit in anywhere. But with time and through music, Estella's realized... I am, I am a bridge across this line. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hazlett. Democrats' Build Back Better spending plan has stalled in Congress, largely due to opposition by West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. And some of the funding would have subsidized child care for young children. West Virginia women have the lowest workforce participation rate in the country. 
And many Mountain State moms want to work, but they can't because of the lack of childcare. They say they either can't find it or they can't afford it. Last fall, journalist Emily Corio reported on how the high cost of childcare is affecting families in West Virginia. With sunlight streaming into her kitchen on a warm summer day, Megan Kruger sits at the table in front of her laptop dressed for work. As the noon hour approaches, she closes her computer. It's lunchtime. In front of the stove, she pours red sauce with meatballs into a skillet, some splatters on her blue dress, and she dabs it off with a kitchen towel. She tells her husband to wake the baby. She slices strawberries, warms pasta, and sets out plates. The separation between work life and home life blurred many months ago. As a work-from-home mom, there are pluses to this arrangement, like seeing your smiling baby boy wake up from his midday nap. But it's also exhausting. I wake up super early so I can start work. Um, I work, you know, all day until he has to go to work, and then I take care of the kids, do dinner, do bath time, do um, bedtime all by myself, and then get up and do it again. Early last year, Megan started a new job. She was pregnant, and the family had recently moved into a new house. Her husband, Nathan Stewart, was general manager at a restaurant in Morgantown. Their daughter, Nora, was in kindergarten. Things were falling into place. But then the pandemic hit, and Nathan lost his job. I was devastated by losing my job because I loved my job. And the fact that we were <laughs> in the unknown was, was scary. It was frightening. Um, but luckily, I mean, we, we leaned on each other. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had Daniel the... coming, which was exciting. And, you know, he was born, and he brought so much joy into a situation that was really tough. Soon after Daniel was born, Nathan started a new job, working nights at the WVU library. He would earn half the income he had in his previous job, but working nights allowed the couple to avoid childcare costs. About 20 miles south in Fairmont, Krista and Matthew Dixon face similar childcare challenges. When their first child was born four years ago, their parents provided care for free. With the anticipation of another baby on the way early last year, the couple thought that arrangement would continue. Then came the ultimate surprise. That day when we were there for the ultrasound, as soon as they started, um, I instantly, instantly knew that it was twins. And I looked over, and my husband was just, he was as pale as could be. I thought he might actually pass out. <laughs> Adeline and Alice celebrated their first birthdays in July. Older sister Stella makes them giggle as she follows them around the kitchen island. Krista says they looked into child care centers, but it was going to be between $2,500 and $3,000 a month. At that rate, Krista says she couldn't afford to work, but she loves her job at a local nonprofit that helps those in poverty. So they turned to grandparents again to care for the children three days a week while she and Matthew made special arrangements to cover the other two work days. So my husband now works one day over the weekend, takes off one day during the week, and then I work from home and take care of um, the children for one day. So that's, that's how we're making it work right now. But if someone gets sick or has an appointment, there's a lot of scrambling to figure out childcare for the day. It is something that you would think would be so simple, 
something that so many people need, but it is incredibly, incredibly stressful. Um, whether, you know, it's trying to find affordable, safe childcare or um, even availability of it, it, it is a major problem. The experiences of the Kruger, Stewart, and Dixon families are familiar to many working parents and to West Virginia University research scholar Priscilla Santos. She's studied and written about early care and education issues in West Virginia for the group West Virginia Women Moving Forward. Santos says many parents are caught in a situation where they don't qualify for subsidies that help pay for child care, but don't make enough to pay out of pocket. In theory, it creates a disincentive for participation because why am I going to leave home and spend like a third or a half of what I'm making to pay for child care and try to survive on the rest? A West Virginia Women Moving Forward report published last year offers suggestions to support early care and education in the state such as through a shared services network that could lower cost and improve quality. If we could come up with ideas to provide centralized services, and that could also include janitorial services and, and food services, that way childcare workers would only be focused on their main core or main mission of educating and caring for children. Santos says research shows investments in early care and education not only help the current workforce, but the future one, too. The whole state stands to gain when children are well-educated and and become more qualified workers in the future. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Emily Corio in Morgantown. Parents in Appalachia like Megan and Nathan can wait months, even years, to get their kids a spot in a child care center. And that's because more than 60% of people in West Virginia live in a child care desert, according to the Center for American Progress. A child care desert means there are more people who need child care than there are spots available. As Roxy Todd reports, this leaves many parents scrambling as they juggle family and work. It's the morning of the first day of school for Megan Hollinger's two oldest children. The single mom wakes at six to prepare lunches and get her four children dressed. Around 7.30, she packs them all into her car. 11-year-old Tessa, 8-year-old Abby, and 3-year-old Nathan. All right, you guys ready? Yeah. And 1-year-old Gemma, her baby. Hi, <laughs> you ready to? All right. Full speed ahead. She drops Abby off first at the elementary school, then Tessa at the middle school. I love you. Have a great day, okay? Okay. Bye. Good. Bye. In the back seat, Nathan calls for his mom's right. attention. What's wrong with your shoes? Okay, well, I'll have to fix them when... She arrives at Nathan's Child Care Center and fixes the shoes. I think we could maybe uh, figure out that loop a little better, but what do I know? I just work here. No, I don't really work here. Her last stop before heading into the office is Gemma's babysitter. Her youngest child is on a waiting list to get into child care. There are only two options for a registered child care program in Megan's County. Pocahontas is a rural, mountainous area in West Virginia. It took nearly three years for her son Nathan to get a spot. It's almost impossible to get a child under the age of two into a registered center. A year after he first started school, 
Her three-year-old son, Nathan, is thriving. He loves it. He loves his teachers. I found out that he really loves to draw and write. So he, he likes to practice writing letters and things. And he, he just loves it. It's been really great for him. And, and to be around kids his age has been really great. She's happy with the level of care he's receiving and hopes her daughter, Gemma, will be able to get a spot at the same center. But she says she'll take the first available opening, even if it's at a school on the other side of her county. We have lots of childcare deserts, and those are places where there would not be enough available childcare slots for all the children who need them. This is Barbara Gebhardt. She's an expert in early childhood education and a consultant for an initiative to improve childcare in West Virginia. It's most of the rural areas of our state. She and other child care advocates with the Earlier the Better project are hoping that some of the changes that were implemented during the pandemic can become more permanent. And beyond that, they really want to see early child care improve in terms of making it more affordable for parents and for child care workers and helping figure out how to improve access so families don't have to wait years to get into a child care center. Gebhard says that means more people need to open child care centers in rural communities or expand their businesses to be able to take care of more children. And their group would love to see the state or federal government helping them do that. And also with certain populations where there's just not a lot of child care, like families with infants and toddlers or families who work non-traditional hours, uh, which is many of our low-income families that are working shift work, they just need additional options for care in their neighborhood. The Earlier the Better group also wants to see more child care centers in West Virginia offer better quality education. They want to see staff have more training in topics like early childhood development and ideally bachelor's degrees. They say this would help improve the quality of care for all kids, including children with special needs. In Morgantown, West Virginia, Taryn Moser's second son was having behavioral problems at his child care center. He was two. He just had these outbursts, and because the staff was not educated or trained in how to handle his emotions and, you know, these, these tantrums and these episodes, it turned into two to three hour tantrums. The child care center eventually told Moser they couldn't continue to take care of her son. She could have gone through the local school system to try to get him into early preschool. Those programs exist in each county in West Virginia, free for parents who have children with special needs. But she found another child care center where staff were trained in occupational therapy, and she asked to be put on their waiting list. I knew that this would be the best environment for my son. Once we got him into this facility, he was able to thrive. But it took 16 months before a spot opened up for her son. During that time, she had babysitters and family members help out, but it was a struggle, and at times she considered quitting her job to be able to take care of her son. I didn't want him to be left behind, and every day it was such a challenge, and it was very, very hard for me to leave him every day. I was scared for my son. I wanted to stay home, and I wanted to be with him. Back in Pocahontas County, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, time for Megan Hollinger to pick up her four kids. Normally, her two older kids walk home and spend the afternoon with a babysitter. But today, her sitter has to go to a doctor's appointment, so Megan picks up her children a little early. She says without her family to support her and neighbors who've helped with childcare, she doesn't think she could have kept working while she waits to get her kids into childcare. She picks up her youngest, one-year-old Gemma, first. On this hot August day, Gemma is singing Jingle Bells. <laughs> She's singing Jingle Bells. 
Tangle Valley? Then they swing by the elementary school to pick up Abby. Gemma wraps her arms around her eight-year-old sister. They head out to pick up Nathan next, and then Tessa. Then the family drives back up the mountain to home. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. Since that story originally aired last fall, Megan Hullinger did get her youngest daughter, Gemma, a spot at a child care center in Pocahontas County. What does it mean to be an urban Appalachian? Marie Manila has some thoughts about that. She's a writer who grew up in Huntington, West Virginia, a city along the Ohio River. Manila spoke with reporter Liz McCormick about how she uses her work to push change in West Virginia and around the world. Manila started off by reading from an essay called Powerless about a trip she took out west. It was meant to be a way to dip our toe into Nebraska and check it off our list. White clay was just a dot on the map, a one-street town of a dozen weather-worn buildings and ten inhabitants, badlands of a different kind that sold four and a half million cans of beer per year. That's a lot of beer for ten people. The residents of Pine Ridge, two miles north, did most of the buying since selling alcohol on the reservation was prohibited. I didn't want to see what I was seeing outside the four beer-selling establishments, all white-owned. Clusters of Native men, mostly, slumped over on curbs, some passed out drunk. We never want to see stereotypes come to life, the damning blanket thrown over whole peoples. It's not racism, the white county commissioner said in defense of those liquor stores eager to make profit off alcoholism. It's just good old American supply and demand. The images shot me back to store vestibules in downtown Huntington where I'd seen homeless folks hunkered down against the elements or passed out or drunks shambling around outside the city mission. They weren't allowed inside under the influence, so they'd bounce off the outer walls. More recently, it was individuals OD'd in gas station bathrooms that made the nightly news, whole clusters narcanned back to life in shooting galleries. The Sackler family, who owns Purdue Pharma, made millions over peddling OxyContin in West Virginia, the drug that jump-started thousands of habits. In a 10-year period, Nearly 21 million pills were sold in Williamson, population 3,200. The Sacklers don't have to crash in vestibules and shooting galleries. They live cushy lives in Boko Raton. In their book, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, Chris Hedges and Joe Sacco spotlight four American regions they refer to as sacrifice zones. White clay is one of them, as is Welch, West Virginia. These are areas of the country that have been used up and spit out in the name of capitalism, 
natural resources and people's health gobbled up, profits often funneled out of state. Once drained, the residents are abandoned, left in environmental and existential crises. Alcohol salves the ache, as do drugs. It's a despairing reality that's hard to look at head on. White clay was hard to look at, and I was eager to leave. Lucky for me, I could. Wow, Marie, that was beautiful. And thank you so much for sharing that. For our listeners, this is an essay that you wrote that will be published in Still the Journal in this fall's 2021 publication. Um, Thank you for giving us a little sneak peek into that. Marie, just so our listeners know, ahead of our interview, I asked uh, you to pick a passage from your writing that really resonated with you as what it means to be Appalachian. Tell us why you chose this passage to share. I chose it because I live in Huntington, and I see the fallout of drug addiction on a regular basis where I live. I consider myself an urban Appalachian writer since Huntington was the largest city in the state when I grew up here, and it's second only to Charleston now. And thus, I consider my experiences more urban than rural, and that's a view I want to present in my work. And also, my husband Don and I live very close to downtown in an area that is just ripe with petty crime, and the goods are pawned to support drug habits. So like those passed out folks that I saw in White Clay, it's a hard reality to see in my hometown, but it's one I I just can't turn away from. I don't want to be too despairing to listeners because Huntington is taking a very proactive approach and a humane approach to solving the drug problems here, issues of addiction and the subsequent crime that support it. So when folks do overdose here, Social workers are dispatched along with the police and EMTs and uh, fire officials to help get those folks into treatment instead of just shuffling them off to jail or sending them back to their addiction. So I credit our mayor, Steve Williams, and our fire chief, Jan Rader, and others for having the heart to do this. You know, Marie, early on you mentioned that you identify as an urban Appalachian author. And I want to ask you if you can talk a little bit more about what that is and why that side of Appalachia is important to you to show to the world. Yes. As I said, when I grew up in Huntington, we probably had sixty-five to 70,000 people at the time. And I truly felt like a city girl riding that bus into town and to shopping in all those uh, lovely clothing stores that we had down there. When I started writing fiction, I was writing about people like me. And I noticed when I tried to get them published in journals that focused on uh, Appalachia, um, I wasn't being accepted with open arms. And in fact, one editor sent me back a note and said, you know, I love the writing here, but could you send us something more Appalachian? And I understood that what a lot of Appalachian-themed journals at the time were wanting to write about were the hollow-dwelling coal mining experiences, which I love to read about. I absolutely love to read about, but that's not the West Virginia I grew up in, and it's not the one I could authentically write about. So... I just continued to write my stories and 
kind of set them in, uh, you know, larger cities with the city issues. And um, what I'm seeing is that more and more writers in Appalachia are wanting to write those stories too. That's also a part of Appalachia. There are big cities in Appalachia. There are urban problems in Appalachia that also need to be dealt with in fiction. So I'm delighted that there's a renaissance going on in Appalachian literature and a lot of writers are, are tackling these issues. Marie, could you talk a little bit more about that? You, you said that you, you see this, this renaissance in Appalachian writing. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I think what this renaissance is about is showing to people beyond our borders, and I don't just mean West Virginia, I mean all of Appalachia, that we are not one monolithic thing, as the world often wants to believe, and as the publishing industry often wants to perpetuate, or or used to, I think historically, they only wanted to present kind of the grit-lit side of Appalachia, you know, the dark lots of animals being killed and murders and and all that, Uh, the deliverance type of stories, they want that to be all that we're about. And that's not all that we are about. You know, we we are urban, we are city dwellers, we are gay, we are straight, we are transgender. So this renaissance is giving voice to all of those, all of those people. And I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Marie, you've recently been recognized as the 2021 Appalachian Heritage Writer in Residence at Shepherd University. And one big part of that has been also your book, The Patron Saint of Ugly, published in 2014, that won the Weatherford Award that year and has been translated into French, too. It's, it's, a, it's a book that has done incredibly well and continues to capture the fascination of readers. But as part of the Appalachian Heritage Festival this year, it has been chosen as the one book, one West Virginia common read by the West Virginia Library Commission's West Virginia Center for the Book. Talk with us a little bit about this book, The Patron Saint of Ugly, and why you think that it continues to capture readers. Mm. Well, I will say that it's probably the closest thing to autobiography that I'll ever write, though if you read it, you will question that. The main character is uh, a young woman named Garnet who was born with port wine birthmarks just covering her body that looked like a map of the world. And those land masses shapeshift over time, depending on what's going on geopolitically around the country. And if, if that's not enough, Garnet may or may not be able to heal people. The seed of the novel came from the fact that I was born with a port wine birthmark on my hand and wrist that I always thought looked like North and South America, including the Panama Canal. And Garnet is also, she's half Italian, as am I. And the novel is also set in the area of Huntington where I grew up. One of the reasons I wrote the novel is that I love magical realism. Ever since I read Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children, and Garcia Marquez's A Hundred Years of Solitude, and Isabella Allende's everything that she ever wrote. I love magical realism. And I'll give you a brief description for your listeners. It's writers create worlds that are very much like the worlds that we live in. It's here on planet Earth. However, unusual things happen that are treated as normal. So in The Patron Saint of Ugly, when Garnet's birthmarks shapeshift, it's kind of treated as normal, as are her hit or miss healing abilities. And one of the goals of magical realism is to 
have readers look at this world that's being created in the novel with a new set of eyes so that when they put the novel down and then look at their very real world, they may look at it with a new set of eyes. And that was my goal in Patron Saint of Ugly. I wanted to present a view of us, not only to outsiders, but to insiders that would make them look at us in a new way. I wanted Garnet to be a potential saint. I wanted her to have magical qualities. I wanted her to be beautiful. And though that's a struggle for her to believe throughout the course of the novel, by the end of the novel, she does begin to believe that she is beautiful and that she is a saint. And one of the things I talked about at the Appalachian Heritage Writers and Residence Festival was that so many West Virginians and Appalachians, I think, have been crushed by all the demeaning, belittling stereotypes that we've endured over the last you know, 150 years or so, we're not immune to it. And we often don't feel as if we're deserving or, or worthy of love and respect. And we are. And that's one of the goals of the novels was to show not just to outsiders, but to ourselves that we are deserving and beautiful and worthy of love and respect. We're not expendable, as many outsiders would have us believe. That was writer Marie Manila speaking with West Virginia Public Broadcasting reporter Liz McCormick. Next week, we'll hear a story about beans and cornbread. We trace the roots of this staple in many Appalachian communities and learn more about the nutritional benefits of the dish. Beans and cornbread is probably what made it possible for people to live in this state. So beans and cornbread is like all the amino acids that your body needs. So it's basically like the nutritionally perfect food. That's next time. Till then, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by the Lua Project, West Swing, Jake Sheps, and Dinosaur Burps. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. 